When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If I look at the overarching story, the God story, what seems to be really prevalent to me is how scandalously and provocatively God is for women. In a, in a time and in a culture where women couldn't vote, where most women weren't even taught how to read, where women were possessions owned by their fathers and then their husbands, Jesus spoke directly to women. Jesus had women sit at their feet and was developing them to become leaders, and women helped fund the ministry of Jesus. We see women like Lydia in the New Testament who was a business owner and helped fund the early church. We see Queen Esther in the Old Testament use her influence and voice to stop a genocide. We see the Proverbs 31 woman being this business-savvy investment property, business owner who uses her voice to impact her community. And so then I hear these these narratives in church that use scripture to say, women, keep your husband's bellies full and keep them sexed up in the bedroom. And oh yeah, stay quiet. <laughs> Don't have an opinion about it. I just have a huge problem with it. It just seems so out of alignment with what I read about who God is. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back with a kind of a two-parter. This is a bit of a two-part series. So this week's guest is Kat Harris. Kat is a podcaster as well, uh, and also an author. In fact, she has a new book out called Sexless in the City, and it's all about uh, her journey and her personal story in terms of uh, the topic of sex and, you know, waiting till marriage, not waiting till marriage. What do you do? There's obviously a lot of societal pressures and, you know, let's be honest, sex, uh, for those of you out there who have had it, is a lot of fun. And so, you know, what does that look like within the context of your own personal spirituality and, you know, uh, and just how does that look? It's a, it's a tricky, complicated subject, and uh, Kat does a really nice job of laying it out in, in her book, um, along with a lot of really good psychological research as well. Uh, so, uh, but this is one perspective. So uh, I, I do want to make note of that. This is one person's perspective, and, and these are the conclusions that she reached. Um, and you may disagree with it, and that's okay. Uh, we have another guest coming on in a couple weeks that shares uh, a different perspective, I think, uh, has a different story, a different uh, perspective on the subject. And so uh, I wanted to share two, to have two guests that kind of come at it from two different angles. And so I think for me personally, the takeaway at the end of the day uh, was a sense of personal respect, you know, and, and, uh, and, um, taking the subject seriously, taking the act seriously and, uh, and ultimately, uh, valuing yourself. And so, um, yeah, so 
take a listen, uh, formulate your own, your own opinions, your own, uh, your own thoughts on it. But I thought it was a fun conversation to have, uh, not a topic that we've covered before. So, uh, so with that, uh, we'll get to Kat here in a second in our conversation, but I also uh, want to uh, to say if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the work that we're doing, uh, consider joining our Patreon family. Uh, you can find the link in our show notes and on our website. If you go to www.thedeconstructionists, uh, that's plural with an S on the end, .com, uh, you can go to our website. You can find that Patreon link there, but you can also find all of the episodes that we've ever done. Uh, you can stream them directly from the site. You can find our blog there as well. Um, our web store, we've got some cool t-shirts, coffee mugs, pint glasses. You can also find our social media links so you can chat with us online. Uh, you can find our contact information. So if you want to shoot us an email, you can do so there. Uh, really easy way to support us. If, uh, if you um, can't support us financially, uh, if that's not a place uh, where, where you're at right now, that is totally okay. Um, if you uh, just want to support us in, in the easiest way possible, if you go to iTunes and leave us a nice five-star review, that helps us gain exposure. And of course, just by word of mouth. So if you think this is helpful, the work that we're doing here at the Deconstructionist Podcast, uh, if you don't mind uh, telling a friend or many friends, however, however many friends you have, no judgment. Um, but that's just a good way for us to get the word out. So we appreciate that. Also, the music this week... Uh, was provided by Ellie Holcomb, and she's got some new tunes out. And uh, actually, well, less new by the time this podcast comes out, but still excellent. Uh, really, really beautiful songs. So go out and support her. We'll have all of her links in the show notes as well. We also update our Spotify playlist with a uh, new song by whatever the featured artist is in the latest episode. So if you want to, if you are a Spotify person, if you go to Spotify and just search for the Deconstructionist, not only will you find our podcast through there, but you also find our Spotify playlist that we that we keep updated. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. So thank you guys uh, always for listening. We appreciate the support uh, and the love and uh, we'll keep trucking. So uh, next episode will be on a couple weeks, different perspective, and then we'll get into some other topics uh, that we can't wait to release. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And lastly, and without further ado, I give to you Kat freaking Harris. Right. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Kat, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks so much for having me, John. I'm so grateful and I'm excited to be chatting with you about all the things. I can't wait to just dive in. Yeah, and, and this is this is you know, like I said before we start recording, this is a, this is a first. We've never really talked about sex or sexuality. Uh, not that we've shied away from it, but um, your book coming out is the, the perfect time and the, and the perfect way to kind of address this topic. Uh, before we get into it, though, uh, tell folks a little bit about your background, kind of maybe how you were raised. Were you raised particularly religious or, or how did that look um, when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas. And even though I didn't grow up in a Christian home, Christianity was kind of the air I breathed in Texas Bible Belt culture. And a lot of my extended family 
were and are Christians, but my family was not. And I became a Christian going into my senior year of high school. Uh, A very, I think, typical (laughs) Southern evangelical youth group experience. I went to a summer church camp with some of my friends and by the last day was baptized, had this experience with God and came home and my family was like, what the hell happened to you? You are crazy. (laughs) And I was like, you guys, there's this great news. I have to tell you about Jesus. So I definitely uh, was all in after that moment. And, And because I had grown up already in Southern culture, when I became a Christian and started learning about things like purity and purity ring ceremonies and good Christians don't have sex or modesty, things like that. It wasn't a foreign concept to me. Even though I didn't grow up in a Christian home, my parents taught us not to have sex until marriage. And even I I asked my mom recently, why did you teach us that if, if it wasn't connected to faith? And she just was kind of like, well, that was what was taught to me and that is the right thing to do. And and so that was sort of the environment that I grew up in. And I went off to college and I ended up becoming a Bible major and went to a, a Baptist Bible school where I got lots of condescending pats on my head for being a female Bible major because all the men were like, well, that's cute. You're studying the Bible. You know, you know, because you're a woman, you can't preach or anything though, right? And I always felt really uncomfortable with that. But then again, everything I had ever been taught from Southern Christian culture was that women couldn't preach. And I thought, if I, I really love God and I'm going to trust God that this is what's right. And so all these kind of grew up with all these narratives that to my core, I kind of had like a, mm, is that real? Is that true? Is that the way? But I kind of stuffed those doubts for a long time. And I, I played the game because I wanted to be a good Christian girl. <laughs> <laughs> so you bring up a topic that we've actually, um, we have previously addressed on, on the podcast and that's this, this purity culture thing. And so, um, mm. I don't think we need to go into heavy detail about it, but, but, um, how did, how did that impact or or kind of form, uh, your views on sex and sexuality, um, in, in obviously your formative years? Cause they kind of, they kind of get you with that when you're, you know, what preteen teen. Yeah. I think some of the most damaging parts of the purity movement for me personally, as a woman was that the women suffered most from the purity message. And there were all the metaphors about, well, if you have all this sex, you're you're like a rose passed around. And by the time you meet your husband, that rose is going to be dirty. You are a chewed piece of bubble gum. You're a piece of tape put together so many times that it's lost its stickiness. And primarily in all those metaphors, it was the woman being passed around. And so I learned things implicitly from those messages like men are more sexual than women. I learned things like my body as a woman is bad and innately sexualized 
because I've been taught that men are more sexual than women, because anytime things like masturbation or pornography were talked about in the church, it was like, all right, guys, listen up. It was only men were only addressed in the room. And so I learned, oh my gosh, I not only have I learned masturbation is sinful for guys, but no one's addressing women in the room. And so I must be doubly sinful if I'm a girl and masturbating. And I learned that it's my job as a woman to uphold the sexual integrity of men. Because under underneath the idea that was taught to us that men are more sexual than women is almost this idea that boys will be boys. Boys can't control their urges. Boys are primal. They're physical beings. And so it's because you are the one woman that are causing them to quote unquote, stumble into sin, you need to cover your body. And so I think for a lot of years, I, I mean, I preached the message. I was a camp counselor in college. I was a Bible study leader all through college. And I would say modest is hottest y'all modest is hottest. And man, now only in hindsight, do I see how much because of messages like that, did I shut down my sexual desire did I shame and resent my body? Did I allow myself to be hypersexualized by both church and the culture? And that it also enabled me to have a very low view of men. Well, boys will be boys. And so I probably was asking for it. Um, so I think outside of the purity movement being a <laughs> campaign to get teenagers not to have sex outside of marriage, it had a lot of problematic narratives that said, Boys can't control themselves, and girls are essentially the problem. And so even when we see the shows like Bridgerton today that just came out on Netflix, I see, wow, actually not much has changed in the church or culture. Women weren't allowed to be sexual in the way that men were. Women were required to be pure in a way that men weren't required to be pure. And women were aspired to get married in a way that men weren't. And I think, wow, that's an interesting period piece, but it actually doesn't feel much different in the church today. Yeah, it, there is this very weird uh, imbalance there, um, just in terms of, you know, it, it seems that, that women were all kind of pulled into a, into a room and, and kind of taught this very strict, structured, uh, you know, obviously like psychologically damaging idea of, you know, uh, you know, what sexuality is, what it, you know, uh, what it looks like. And, and this idea that no man will want you because it's all based, you know, it's all based obviously on pleasing the man, which is ridiculous. And then mm-hmm. you've got the, other, the flip side where the, the guys weren't getting the same talk clearly. Mm-hmm. And we, we kind of yeah, got, I want to know pass. what talk you were getting. <laughs> we got a free pass. Essentially. It's like, Oh, we can't, you know, just a bunch of mindless cavemen who just can't, you know, you're just too attractive. We can't, can't help ourselves, which is absurd, you know? And, mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't put any responsibility whatsoever on, on the men in the situation. So you've got kind of this damaging psychological uh, ideas on, on both sides, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even just things like learning most of my Christian life, the verses from Ephesians 5 that says, wives, submit to your husband. I mean, those verses in 2021 make me cringe. And I'm like, really? I'm supposed to submit to my husband? What the hell does that even mean? And 
Well, I, I did like a three-month word study on that passage last year when I was writing my book because it was so problematic to me. I was like, what is really being said in this text? Because if I look at the overarching story, the God story, what seems to be really prevalent to me is how scandalously and provocatively God is for women. In a, in a time and in a culture where women couldn't vote, where most women weren't even taught how to read, where women were possessions owned by their fathers and then their husbands, Jesus spoke directly to women. Jesus had women sit at their feet and was developing them to become leaders, and women helped fund the ministry of Jesus. We see women like Lydia in the New Testament who was a business owner and helped fund the early church. We see Queen Esther in the Old Testament use her influence and voice to stop a genocide. We see the Proverbs 31 woman being this business-savvy, investment property, business owner who uses her voice to impact her community. And so then I hear these these narratives in church that use scripture to say, women, keep your husband's bellies full and keep them sexed up in the bedroom. And oh yeah, stay quiet. (laughs) Don't have an opinion about it. I just have a huge problem with it. It just seems so out of alignment with what I read about who God is. Yeah, it kind of of seems like a guy uh, misinterpreted that verse to his own benefit somewhere (laughs) along the way, just a guess, but you know. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So one of the things I thought was really interesting at the beginning of your book, um, you know, I I think it's, if we're looking chronologically, I think it's after you moved to New York City, where obviously anything you want, you know, is at your fingertips, literally the city that never sleeps. Uh, I've been there enough times to know that all of a sudden five o'clock in the morning rolls around awfully quickly and you have no idea what time it is, you know, but (laughs) but what (laughs) One of the interesting things I thought uh, at the beginning of your book and and the start of the story here is that uh, you consulted your community, you consulted your best friend about you know mm-hmm. kind of kind of w- working through your views on no sex before marriage, and she gave you some really sage advice, despite the fact that you make it clear that she's not necessarily a Christian, not necessarily one who believes in waiting for marriage. And what I thought was the most interesting is that in your journey. Uh, and, and by the way, you approach things the same way I do, obviously, is like just jumping and researching the hell out of it. So um, I appreciate that part. But you unpack way more. Uh, you, you unpack uh, what it means to be a feminist. Uh, you, there's a lot more that came out of your 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 search than just, you know, why do I mm-hmm. wait until until marriage? Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, you're breaking out a little bit. So I, I think I may have missed the question in there. It was a little um, garbly. Yeah. I don't know um, if it's a bad connection or sorry. I just missed like the last part of it. Sorry. Oh, sure. No. Um, so basically what I was saying is I, I found it very interesting that um, when you embarked on your uh, mm. on your kind of quest to, to figure out why do I believe this? Why do I, why am I saving myself from marriage? You impact a lot more than just the answer to that question. Um, you you kind of uh, looked into what it means to be a feminist. Uh, mm. You kind of already mentioned, you know, some of these strong, powerful female figures in the Bible. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think what happened for me was it's kind of like, you know, when you get an email from someone and 
one email opens up a can of worms of 10 more things to put on your to-do list. Like, oh, I just need to check my email. And then you blink and it's four hours and you're neck deep in your emails. And now you're like, oh, I need to repaint my house and call my accountant. And and so I think that journey was kind of what happened for me. I was on the heels of a breakup. I had moved to New York recently. I dated more in one year than I had dated in an entire decade. I was online dating. I was casual dating. I had never dated casually in my life. I was having sleepovers with my boyfriend and had never done that before in my life. And I found that once I was given the opportunity to abstain from sex, that my resolve was very thin and that it was one thing to say, oh my gosh, I don't have sex. I'm doing it God's way when I really didn't date much. And then once that really changed in New York, I was, I became at a fork in the road where I didn't feel guilty for going past what my boundaries had been for many years. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I didn't know what to do with being in a city like New York, where almost every Christian I met was sleeping around and having casual sex and or living with significant others. And so I, I got to this point where I was just tired of it. I was tired of I was tired of hearing hearing mostly male pastors who got married in their early 20s tell me not to have sex when I was at that point approaching 30. I was tired of many of those same pastors who told me to keep my stuff in my pants being exposed for sexual scandal. And I was just really tired of the shame that I felt. So I, I went to my best friend who is not a Christian and who definitely believes in casual sex because I thought she would agree with me. <laughs> I thought I would go to my, my best friend who loves casual sex and tell her I'm going to have sex moving forward. And she really challenged me. She said, I want you to have sex. You can get on with your life, but I know it really means something to you. So you need to pray to your God and read your Bible and talk to Jesus. She always used to uses quotes, <laughs> talk to quote unquote, Jesus. <laughs> like, I don't think you're using the quotes, right? Um, but she said, go, you need to figure out what you believe and why. So I started by researching every verse in the Bible that talked about sex and relationships. And the more I started looking that up, the more I started noticing other things. Oh, what even is sex? What's my definition of sex and what exactly am I abstaining from? And, oh, interesting. My, I've, I've, I've somehow, as I'm researching sex, realized that I have attached my salvation with my virginity. Why do I believe that if I'm not having sex, I have a, a better seat at God's table? What, where's that theology from? Where, where am I coming up with the idea that if you do it, quote unquote, God's way, it's going to make me have a better sex life? In fact, if I look around... At the time, I had been a bridesmaid 17 times, and I had many friends who got married just because they were wanted to have sex. And I'm now 35 and have seen the fallout of people getting married prematurely because they wanted to have sex. And I also saw, gosh, not having sex before you're married doesn't mean you're going to have a banging sex life. In fact, when you're really shamed before 
marriage, that shame doesn't magically disappear. So I think as I asked the question about sex in the Bible, I, I became aware that I was really compartmentalizing my life. And so I started asking myself, what does it look like to be a holistic human? What does it look like to be an integrated human? And what are the other narratives I've attached to my sexuality and identity that are rooted in fear and shame? And so once it's like, once you start teasing a little bit of it out, it like exploded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's so interesting. And, um, before, before I get into my next question, I, I, I forgot to mention the title of the book, which obviously I will mention and put in the show notes, but sexless, sexless in the city, a sometimes sassy, sometimes painful, always honest look at dating desire and sex. And one of the things that I really love about the start of the book is that you say right at the beginning, what this book is not. And so Talk about why that was important. Because, uh, so I'm a Y person. I've always been a Y person, much to my parents' dismay as a toddler. Why, why, why? Why don't you want me to touch the stove? And I think there's so much out there right now because we live in a very instant gratification-driven culture we want the 10 step guide to meet our partner. We want the get rich overnight formula. We want the prescription, the system to regurgitate to something, what we do or do not believe about God, what we do or do not believe about sex. And I just thought that is not what I want to do. If in fact, if someone reads my book and they walk away with the script as to why they're not having sex, then I have blown it. I've really blown it. If someone walks away and they're like, oh, I can do these three things and I will meet my spouse, then I feel like when we do that, we flatten the nuance and layers of what the human experience is. And instead of prescribing, I really wanted to, yes, share my story and share where I now land on a lot of these questions, but hopefully equip people with the tools to do their own work. Don't take my word for it. You seek God. (laughs) You do your own research. Look at your own experiences. Figure out what you want and are your actions in alignment with what it is that you really want. And I think, unfortunately, what we want is very black and white, short sound bites. And those are preachable. They go well from a pulpit and they get a lot of amens, but they're not very livable. So I I just wanted to make it clear from the very beginning that I'm not here to tell you how to live. I hopefully can cast a vision that's more robust than than a shame-based narrative that so many of us received. But more than that, I also hope to equip you with tools to, to go on your own excavation dig. So you must know the choices I've made and the pain that I That's so good. I think a, a lot of what a lot of folks, uh, unfortunately, who are listening right now have experienced in their upbringing is kind of this shame-based approach, whether it's, uh, you know, sexuality or, or, you know, one of the many other topics we, we tend to use shame as a motivator for. But mm-hmm. I, I think we've realized that shame is not something that, uh, or shame is a tool, rather, is not something that really necessarily um, 
creates lasting change. It's it's mm. not necessarily a heart change. And yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I think shame. I love how Brene Brown says it. Shame says I am bad, and guilt says I did something bad. And I think shame has such an agenda. The agenda of shame is to keep us small, hidden, stuck, and isolated. And I don't think that's the invitation that God has for humanity. I think the invitation that God has for humans is to flourish, to live abundantly, not in scarcity, not in condemnation, not in shame or fear or hiding, but to live a life out in the open with myself, with others, connected to each other, to God, and connected to love, acceptance, dignity, relationship. And so now when I when I experience any sort of action or belief and I feel that it is rooted in shame, I just get really curious. What's the fear under here? What's what's the fear driving driving this thing? Because I'm not meant to be stuck in isolation alone and small. Oh yeah, that's so good. Um one of the things that, that I, I really thought was interesting about um, one of the early stories that you tell in the book is you tell the story about your first big photo shoot and, mm. and how uh, this model comes up to you afterwards and says, you know, you're basically tells you you're the first person that's ever asked her, her name, which I thought number one was insane that that was the first, but, but there's this byproduct of, again, of this kind of journey that you've taken where, it's kind of impacted other areas of your life as well outside of sex. And that obviously being one of them, how, how profound was, was that moment? And what, what did that make you realize in the moment where she, you know, had that conversation with you? Oh my gosh, that was absolutely a pillar foundational transformational moment in my life. And a huge reason was because first of all, up until that point, I had never been head shooter on an editorial set. I, I worked for a, a big wig, very successful, famous photographer. And I was always the runner, the assistant, back behind the scenes. And I had been shooting fashion week for years and felt invisible. I was at the time one of two women in the photographer's pit at fashion week. And I just felt like everything about being a woman was hindering me in the fashion industry. I was getting less opportunities. I was not getting bids on jobs because all the guys would go out afterwards and it was locker room, bro town city. And anytime I would try to enter the conversation, it was, it was, oh my gosh, it, it happened. It was crazy that it happened to me in this, in the industry, because it also happens in the church all the time. And anyways, I would go up to a group of guys that I had been shooting with all day and their instant response was, oh, my wife, my wife, this, my wife, that, and oh, my wife is over there. And I was like, no one's trying to be a homewrecker here. Like, (laughs) I'm just saying hi. And I'm just trying to network with you. Just like all these men are trying to network with you. And so I was, I felt so discouraged constantly in the fashion and photography world. And then I get this opportunity to be a head photographer at this editorial because they couldn't afford to hire my boss. So he sent me. And so I'm 
researching on Google the night before how to use the lighting equipment so I don't blow up this industrial loft that the client rented. And, and I hired my own team for the very first time. And I had been on enough sets and backstages where I just saw so much toxicity and where the photographers and the stylists would talk about the models like they were objects. Oh, her hair's so thin. Is she balding? Oh, I thought she was going to be skinnier. And then on top of all the body shaming, they wouldn't feed anyone all day. And so I thought if I'm going to be head shooter, I'm hiring a team that is going to be speaking life over people. So I hired a team of people that I knew did not have a track record of gossiping or body shaming. I paid out of my own pocket to feed everyone all day, plenty of food. And I just got to know the model in between shots. And I asked her her name and her story and just showed, in my opinion, a very human amount of curiosity in this human being. And so when she left and said, thank you so much for asking me my name, she hugged me and left. And I just felt like this is an important moment. This is why I'm in this industry. And this is what makes me different. This is how my femininity and my feminine heart and energy is actually an asset. This woman felt seen by me. And she felt safe with me because she knew I wasn't trying to get scandalous photos or or get her to take her clothes off for a shot. I was able to build a level of trust with her because it was woman to woman. And that really shifted a narrative in me internally where up until that point, I believe my femininity is a liability and it's hindering me in my career. But from that moment on, it, it was like, nope, my femininity is an asset. And really having that mindset shift changed the trajectory of my career because no longer was I on an evidence hunt of why I would not get the job. I started showing up and pitching myself and why not me? Here's why I'm a good fit for this job. It totally changed my confidence. And then that shoot also got picked up by two national campaigns and ended up on the cover of a magazine. And so it was a huge confidence builder for me. And then underneath it just showed me the power of knowing someone's name and treating another human with kindness. Uh, It was such a great story in the book. No, thanks. Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the the things you do in the book too that I thought was interesting and, and maybe I related to something unrelated, but uh, it made me think because at 39, I find myself randomly back in the dating pool again, which was not my life plan, but here we are, you know? Um, so I, you know, you talk a little bit about like the, the culture that we find ourselves in now with, you know, swipe, swipe left, swipe right, which by the way, I'm old enough to the point where I have to actually Google which way to, you know, swipe. <laughs> so I still get confused sometimes. I'm like, is it my right or your right? Like stage right, stage left. (laughs) Yeah. And, and all the apps are different. So, and some, some of you swipe, some of you click a button. I don't know. It's too much for me, but, but anyway, like there, there are these (laughs) cultural shifts that I've noticed, um, on these apps in in the profiles, uh, where there are things that I honestly was just naive to that. I, I learned through the process of, of scrolling through dating uh, resumes, I guess it kind of feels that way. Um, but things like polyamory and ethical non-monogamy. And I just knew, uh, that didn't make any sense to me, but there's a part in your book that kind of 
put into words why I'm like, I don't think that works uh, or is sustainable. And you talk about the difference between, uh, human beings and animals, uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to, to sex, because I think you, I think you start off talking in that section about how, uh, a lot of times, you know, historically, um, guys especially get kind of a pass cause they're like, Oh, we're just, just animal instincts, you know? And, and mm-hmm. I think you talked about mm-hmm. brothels back in the day. Uh, and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. you, you make this distinction though, between the fact between human beings and animals, we're not animals. We are, we have consciousness mm-hmm. and, and we are so much more, uh, you know, beyond that. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, goodness, I have, I have <laughs> Sir Rob Bell to thank for uh, the, the ideas behind angels versus in his book, sex God, he talks about angels versus animals. And essentially the idea is that culture teaches us that we are the sum of our urges. So do what feels good. Live your truth. You, if you have an itch, scratch it. If you're hungry, feed it. And, and, and not only is that what you should do, you are entitled to do it. If you want something, you are entitled to have it right now. And, in that it what what it teaches underneath that is your underneath the sum of my urges is that's what animals are right animals want food they get food you want sex go have sex you want sleep go sleep and so that that's the cultural message and then the message of the church often swings totally on the other side of that pendulum of become like an angel be essentially the idea is be asexual because you're not allowed to be connected to your sexuality or sexual desire. It's wrong. It's bad. It's sinful. It's gross. So shut it down. I always think of the movie mean girls where there's the coach. I think it's coach Carr. He's in the gym teaching sex ed and he's all don't talk about sex. Don't think about thinking about sex. If you have sex, you will get chlamydia and die. And I think often that's the narrative of the church. So you have the culture saying, do whatever you want. And then you have the church saying, oh, don't do anything. It's all bad. And both are super problematic. And in fact, I think both actually worship sex as uh, at the core. It's just culture has culture is more honest about it. And I think why that doesn't work is because we are actually more than our desires. And I think that's what is very distinct about the human experience is I can say, I really want to have that fourth cocktail. I really want that, but I'm going to feel like shit tomorrow and I'm going to be super hungover. And guess what? I also don't make the best decisions for four cocktails in. And so I'm going to say no to that because I have a greater vision for the future. I'm going to perhaps say no to a brownie. A brownie isn't bad and I'm definitely going to say yes to it sometimes, but maybe I'm doing a long run tomorrow training for a half marathon. And I know that that's going to make me feel sluggish and slow. And so I think it's very easy for me to see how in other areas of our lives, we practice restraint and that you can practice restraint without legalism. And I think when we say that we are just a sum of our urges, that actually promotes 
oppression and it can also promote rape culture. Well, I couldn't help myself because my desire wanted it. So I didn't need to wait for your consent or even ask for it. I, my pleasure and desire is the most important. And I think when we do that and Bell, what Rob Bell says is when we treat someone else as an object of our desire or the perceived path to completing my desire, we have flattened them. We have flattened a three-dimensional, robust human being and made them a a stick figure on a piece of paper. And when we make someone else less human, we to ourselves become a little less human. So that's why I think, that's why I think it doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and I think, I think a huge component of that, that you talk about even, uh, you know, more later on in the book is this idea that of uh, delayed gratification, which seemingly doesn't exist in our very fast food society. Now, um, you know, going back to dating apps, it's really like speed dating. Now you're just swipe, 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 mm-hmm. you match maybe, and then you chat for a little bit and you go out and it's, everything is super, super fast. So mm-hmm. talk about the benefits. Cause yeah, you do, um, you do back it up even with science, which I enjoyed, uh, in the book, um, the different chemical reactions that happen when sex occurs, um, yeah. you know, that, that make it, that cause complications in it, you know, if, if you're rushing too quickly. Yeah, I think, the scientific research I did around sex. And again, I went on this journey to prove to myself that I wanted to have sex. And I actually found way more compelling reasons to delay the physical than I ever anticipated. So I, I researched what happens in our bodies when we orgasm and uh, we get outpourings of dopamine and oxytocin and dopamine is that, reward center of the brain that gets activated. It's it, dopamine is what releases when we get a like on Instagram. Oh, we, oh, we got 10, 20, oh, hundred likes, a thousand likes. And that dopamine hit gives us this little high and it's designed to create patterns in our brains, neural pathways, so that we can know what behavior to do and to not do. So a example of dopamine is the kindergartner who <clears throat> needs to raise her hand before she can get called on. And if she raises her hand before she gets called on, she's given a gold star at the end of the day. And pretty soon she's gotten enough gold stars. She's created the pattern to know, oh, I only raise my hand. I only can talk when I raise my hand. And so that's what dopamine does in orgasms and in sexual encounters is that dopamine is released and it creates neural pathways in our brains that say, ooh, we like that. How can we do that thing again? So how do we teach our bodies in what ways we want to become aroused, which is a huge reason why things like pornography can be super damaging is what happens is over a span of time and we teach our bodies how to become aroused and climax, then over time, even the mere thought of that thing can become arousing. It's why when a person who is addicted to pornography, how at some point in the, in, in the process of their addiction, even looking at their computer from across the room can become arousing. It's why even in a committed partnership, when there's a porn addiction, 
a partner will want to be aroused by their by their spouse or their partner, but literally can't because through the dopamine reward centers and neuropathways created, they've taught their body actually no, we come this way over here, and so on the other side of that, it also shows that monogamy and a long-term relationship, a long-term sexual relationship with another, with one person is actually not the death of adventurous or amazing sex, but actually can be the beginning of some of the most mind-blowing sex because the more and more you experience uh, sexual encounters and pleasure with that person. And the, and the more you talk about, oh, this is what feels good. This is what doesn't feel good. Let's try this. The more over time, your body starts to crave that person. And I thought that was fascinating. I thought, and I, so I asked some of some mentors in my life that have been married for 50, 60 years. And over and over again, I heard we're having the best sex of our lives now in our 60s and our 70s. I thought that was fascinating. Another another thing that happens in orgasm and sexual intimacy is oxytocin is released. And oxytocin is that feel-good hormone. It's the hormone that's released between mother and child during breastfeeding. It's the it's released when we hold hands or hug and I it's a it heal it's healing and it makes me wonder if this is why the number one way Jesus chose to heal people was through physical touch there's something bonding and healing about feeling and touching another person and being skin to skin with them and so oxytocin essentially is the hormone designed to bond us to another human and so you you get that outpouring of dopamine and oxytocin in sexual encounters and when we experience pleasure with another person. And it it literally creates neural pathways in our brains and causes us to bond with, with that other person. And in my research, this is why people like anthropologist Helen Fisher, who, as far as I know, isn't a person of faith, will say, I don't believe that there's anything as casual sex. It's why therapists like Esther Perel can say things along the lines that marriage is actually the beginning of romance, not the end of it. Um, so all of all of that stuff was super interesting because it was the last thing that I expected to find when I researched. I thought science would show me that we are just animals and we should just lead to, we should be led by our desires. But really I found, you know, a lot of people say, monogamy isn't natural. And maybe it isn't. Maybe monogamy isn't natural. But I can say that there does seem to be something really transformative that happens within us when we say, when we have a yes, that gives us a bunch of other no's. So when I say yes to a a long-term monogamous relationship, I think the possibility for a deep, deep level of intimacy is really unparalleled in in other relationships. I don't know that we actually have the capacity to have deep, 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 deep relationships with a ton of sexual partners at the same time. And that's that's just my research and experience and, and thought, but the more research I did, the more I kind of became 
convinced that perhaps delaying the physical in my dating relationships was something that would really serve me and be in alignment with what I, what it was that I actually wanted, which, which is a long-term meaningful monogamous relationship that leads to marriage. Some days you're tired of trying to measure up. You see a girl who's not And it seems like there's a pretty clear connection there where where you can't truly be at your most vulnerable and open and intimate with a partner unless you've taken the time to truly get to know them on on that deeper level. And you can't do that unless you're committing uh, a, a period of time with them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's super fascinating to me. And I've had, I have friends that are in open relationships and it's been interesting to, to see that in their lives. And, and often what I see with people I know in open relationships is it's kind of all fun and games until the other person starts seeing another person. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so you're allowed to see someone, but when the other person starts seeing someone, and I've actually never seen it done well long term. So I'm I'm not I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I just haven't talked to the person. I would be super curious to talk to a person who's been in a long term open relationship. That would be really fascinating. And I'm convinced that, I mean, there's an exception to every rule, but like I have the same thing uh, in my uh, debates with people uh, over the fact that I don't think it's sustainable on a long-term basis, just because as you said, when, when there are feelings involved in, and there are all these chemical reactions happening in in, in the body uh, beyond just, you know, the plain level of intimacy involved uh, you know, I, I just, I would love to see, I've said the same thing. I would love to see the couple who are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary mm-hmm. and they're rocking this open relationship their entire lives. It's like, I'm sure there are some, but like, I, mm-hmm. I just don't think it's sustainable at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think, I think someone typically ends up hurt at some point. Mm. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. So one of the things I think that you talk about uh, in the book that, I think is huge. It's just the idea of normalizing just the topic of sex instead of it being this taboo that we can't talk about. Cause you tell this story about a friend of yours who she was kind of uh, weighing the, uh, you know, uh, the pros and the cons of getting married to her boyfriend and you brought up sexual attraction and it was just like, she couldn't even talk about it. And so uh, one of the things you talk about in the book is just like when we start to talk about it, and, and you have a community that you can discuss these things with, suddenly maybe it's not so taboo and suddenly maybe it's not so hard to talk about uh, when that is such a huge part of a loving relationship. You know, like a healthy sex life is a huge, I mean, psych- psychologists will tell you that's a massive component of a successful relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so, so important to 
demystify <laughs> and normalize sex. The desire for sex and sexual desire is one of the most human, normal experiences to have. And there's nothing wrong. There's nothing bad. There's nothing gross. There's nothing disgusting or taboo about being turned on, having desire. It's the most normal thing. And I go back to the Genesis story where God creates humanity and the image of God and says humans are very good. God doesn't say, but your sex is gross and that's what happens to guys when they get turned on. Oh my gosh, no, disgusting. (laughs) No, God created all of it and God said it was very good. And so I think we have to start there. If that's where the God story starts, why don't we start there? And then we have scriptures in the Old Testament Song of Solomon, this erotic foreplay sexual handbook between King Solomon and his wife. I mean, she the book starts with her giving enthusiastic and informed consent. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And the only place I want him sleeping is in between my breasts. And I want him to come to my garden and feast. I mean, <laughs> she couldn't be more clear. She, she's talking about oral sex and she is telling her partner what she wants to experience sexually with him. And then he reciprocates. He says, your lips taste like honey. And there's no other place that I want to be than in bed with you all night. And so I'm like, man, God normalizes it. God created sex. God designed sexuality and desire. And there's even a whole book in the Bible celebrating it. So why would I ever feel ashamed about having sexual desire, about talking about sex, about thinking about sex. In fact, one of the things I love most about Song of Songs is the part where the the friends and family respond to King Solomon and the bride. They go be drunk on love, eat, drink, eat, drink, and be drunk on love, be drunk off each other. And I think, wow, that's so beautiful that everyone knows they're a thing. Everyone knows what they're going home to do. It's no secret. Sex is no secret. And so, yeah, I think I think things would absolutely change and transform if we gave each other, if we gave our children the permission to be sexual beings. You, you are not the sum of your urges, like culture says, and you're also not the absence of your desire, like the church often says. You are, you are made in the image of God, and your sexuality is a part of you. So that means... Wherever you are, relationship status-wise, single, married, in a relationship, not, your sexuality is a part of your human experience. And, and it, even, it even has the God image in it because God created it. So let's start there. Let's remove the shame and, and the taboo from talking about sex. How normal is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love there's a part in the book where you talk about the fact that like, God created the human body, you know, mm-hmm. like male and female. And if God didn't want us to enjoy it, he wouldn't have put all those nerve endings where they are, you know, and he, oh I think he, even said he wouldn't have put, he wouldn't design a clit in a vagina if, if he didn't want us to actually enjoy it. Yes. The, the clitoris has 8,000, more than 8,000 nerve endings, Oof. which is insane. And the, 
only the primary function of the clitoris is pleasure. And here's something really fascinating to think about. God could have created all all 8,000 plus nerve endings to be internal so that women could experience more internal orgasms because 75% of women who identify as female experience their sexual climax externally. So God could have put all those nerves on the inside, but that would have made childbirth 8,000 times more painful. And so I think, wow, God cares so much about my pleasure that he decided to take those nerve and he cares about my pleasure and about my pain tolerance. (laughs) Childbirth is already, it's a huge cause of fatalities. There's so much pain in childbirth. And so the mindfulness to have those 8,000 plus nerve endings externally seems so detail oriented and thoughtful that I'm, I know that God cares about my pleasure because if he didn't, he would not have done that. (laughs) So true. It's funny the things that are so obvious and then you're like, oh, duh. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, wow. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and how quickly we forget how many examples throughout the Bible there are uh, Mm -hmm. of sex and, you know, people enjoying it, you know, that, that Mm -hmm. it's become such a taboo topic and who knows, maybe it's our puritanical roots uh, here in North America. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, equally in scripture, we see what happens when there is abuse of power in the bedroom. We see David, King David raped Bathsheba and then murdered and ab- her husband and abused his power. We see time and time again, Abraham abusing his power with his wife and pimping out his wife to the leaders in, in, in their tribes. We see, we see incest. We see really effed up things in the pages of scripture when there is toxicity in the bedroom. And we see who suffers the most when there's the abuse of power. It's typically the women that are suffering the most. And so I'm always, I'm really shocked that... <laughs> Abraham is like the father of the faith. Cause I'm like, man, dude, you got it right. Once you, <laughs> you, you agreed to, uh, sacrifice your son, Isaac, but all those other times you really blew it. Most <laughs> of the time. In fact, he chose, he chose to not take the high road. And so I, that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. there's beautiful, healthy encounters in scripture where there's mutual, mutual consent. And even if we kind of loop back to the Ephesians 5 passage, Ephesians 5 starts out with wives submit to your husbands. And then it says, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. So basically it's saying you need to be willing to die for your wife. And in a cultural moment where women were viewed as objects and when it was commonplace for men to be running around on their wives and women had no voice or power, could not do anything to defend themselves or make that behavior go away. They couldn't divorce their husbands. They would end up on the streets. And the invitation of Jesus is that men would love their wives and be one woman kind of guys and stay faithful to them and even serve them. In a culture where it was a woman's job to serve the man, the Jesus invitation is for a man to lay down his life out of love and service to his wife. Mm 
And so I'm like, man, if there's anyone who is supposed to be serving the other person (laughs) in the bedroom, then I would think it would be the husband. (laughs) Based off what I'm learning in the scriptures, that to have a mutually a mutual, a mutually reciprocal relationship is is the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the questions I know listeners are are, are going to want to know the answer to. So I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask it. Is obviously like the, the book. It you know, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but it, it seems like it's kind of advocating for um, for for good reasons that are non shame based for for waiting uh, until marriage. But what about like? Cause we do talk, you talk a lot about in the book about just, um, the level of importance on, on just commitment in general. Mm. So I know people are going to say, well, what about, you know, we're not necessarily married, but we're in a long-term committed relationship. You know, you know, what's the big deal about that? So what yeah. would you say to, yeah. What would you say to that? I mean, if, if it was, if it was you that just said, Hey, I'm in a long-term relationship, we're having sex. What do you think about that? I would honestly say that's between you and God. <laughs> it really is. I can say I think wisdom says X, Y, Z. And based off my research, the the invitation of Jesus is to abstain from sex outside of marriage. However, I don't know what God's doing in your story. And I, I think there's such a balance between saying, okay, yeah, this is what the scripture says. So just don't do it. But I just think that God has a lot of space for us. And so I would just encourage you to go on your own journey and figure out what you believe about sex and do your, do your own research into digging into the Bible and, and, digging into your own experience. And, and I don't say that as, you know, I'm living my truth and you live your truth, but really <laughs> I think living in the fallout of the purity movement, what I know 100% did not work was a script to control people that didn't work. So yeah, I can share, here's what, here's where, what I am doing. Here's where I am at. And also, if I end up having sex outside of marriage, guess what? I still love Jesus. My, my virginity or lack of has nothing to do with whether or not I have a seat at the table. And I think for far too long, we've been subtly led to believe that our virginity is enmeshed with our salvation. And I think that's, that's a load of shit. <laughs> do not agree with <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, uh, to your point, I think, um, I think we minimize God and God's grace and God's love, uh, when we start to put very human created types of restrictions uh, on God. And I think we've done that for a very long time and continue to do that in, in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 It's definitely easier to, I mean, it's easier to give a prescription than to walk with someone. I mean, when I was going through this whole journey for myself, a lot of it was me dating guys that were going nowhere fast and had no intentions of being with me seriously. Or we were on op- like we were on opposite sides of the spectrum, faith and worldview. And it was my friends and, and mentors and pastors who had space to walk with me through that that 
ultimately helped me on my transformation process as opposed to the friends, pastors, leaders that were like, well, don't date him. He's not a Christian. It's black and white. Like, do you think if it was that easy, I wouldn't be dating him? (laughs) Well, just don't have sex because the Bible says it. Well, guess what? I'm 35 years old and because the Bible tells me so, so isn't keeping my panties on in the moment. (laughs) So I need something a little bit more compelling than because the Bible tells me so. And so it was the, it was not the people that told me just to do something or not do something. It was the people that got curious with me and walked on a journey with me, which I know makes that really complicated when you're preaching from a pulpit. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's, that's what I would say to that person is let's be curious together. And I let, let me encourage you to, I I would love to walk with you on your journey. Uh, Yeah, I think that's great. I think because it speaks to the complexity of human nature and just how complicated and messy life is. And Mm -hmm. like so many other topics, there isn't a clear cut answer oftentimes. And there's not, as you see in the book, a one size fits all Mm -hmm. uh, for everyone. And we, once we kind of acknowledge that and live in community with each other and really hear each other out and, and listen to one another and, and talk about these things, you know, that's, that's really, I think where the, the healing begins. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. It's, and even saying some of that stuff is hard because I am definitely, I lean towards being a black and white thinker. <laughs> There's a reason I read 50 books. <laughs> <laughs> before making my decision. I have some friends who are like, oh, I just like feel it. And this is the decision I need to make. I'm like, I want to look at it from every single side and ask all the questions and dissect it. And I, I joke that if I had another career, I would be a high school algebra two teacher. Just give me Y equals MX plus B every day. One plus one equals two. I want to fill in for X. I want to know what's right and what's wrong. So even as I share this, it still can be hard for me because I also get to let go of my attachment to what I think you should do because it's what I think is right. That that doesn't help anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole lot of philosophy. It's good for a math problem. It's hard. It's not as good for humans. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, before I let you go, uh, I, I can't let you off the hook without first addressing uh, one of the major components of the book. We have not yet covered masturbation. And so, Ooh. yeah, while we're getting in the nitty gritty, I think we have to address the elephant in the room. And that is, we, we all know that no one does it. Uh, <laughs> no one does it. Women especially don't do it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so in, in your book, uh, you, you do address that topic and um, kind of, you know, the fact that obviously that was kind of lumped in with the, uh, the whole shame package that we received, uh, growing up that, you know, you don't do it. It's awful. It makes God sad, you know? So yeah. what, what did you, what did you learn in, in, in doing this research and kind of what, where do you stand on the topic now? Yeah. I, whenever anyone asks me, is masturbation a sin? I say, yes, no, maybe. I think, first of all, I don't think pleasure is bad. God created pleasure <laughs> and pleasure is more, is more, very, there's way more to pleasure outside of just orgasm. 
We experience pleasure when we have a good meal. We experience pleasure when we get massages. We experience pleasure when we watch a beautiful sunset or are at a concert. There's so many multifaceted ways that we experience pleasure that we can acknowledge our God honoring and and evoking and pointing us to the divine. However, we think of self-pleasure and all we see is negativity and or sin. And I will say, I think the reason why I say yes, no, maybe is because I think so much of masturbation has to do with heart and context. Do I think that there are beautiful reasons to masturbate? Yes. A few of them, if I want to be able to give informed and enthusiastic consent, it's, it's a powerful thing for me to know my body and what does and doesn't feel good. I also think that if I want to accept my, uh, my partner's sexual desire and their body and their pleasure, I first get to accept and honor and love my own. So kind of the principle of love your neighbor as yourself. Implicit there is before I have, before I can love another human, I first have to love myself. I can only give that which I have received for myself. So is it possible that in me learning to accept my own desire, explore my body and explore pleasuring myself that it could actually allow me to have the capacity and empathy to accept my partner's sexuality. I, that's not a leap for me. Also, the invitation of Jesus is to become childlike in our awe and wonder again. And children masturbate all the time. Children are touching themselves. I was touching myself when I was a little girl and it had nothing to do with porn or magazines or anything. I just learned, holy cow, when I go down the pole at recess and my legs are wrapped around the pole, it feels really good in between my legs. And so to me, if it's possible as a child to explore your body and innocence, it has to also be possible to do that as an adult. And, and so in that, I think there are very beautiful and healthy ways that we can explore self-pleasure. And also even just thinking about, I, um, okay, if I am married or have a partner and one of them is out of town and we want to have a sexual experience and have phone sex, can we give, give ourselves permission to have an encounter with each other when we're not in the same room with each other? And can we be intimate in the same room and have a mutual masturbating experience? I think those are all very intimate, can be very intimate expressions in your sex life. Now, I also can see how masturbation can be really harmful. We have C.S. Lewis who talks about the harem within, which is, I think, a very compelling reason to be careful with masturbation. What Lewis says is that, masturbation points us inward and makes love end on itself. And is love really love if it ends on itself? And the harem within, you are surrounded by ever-adoring brides, and the harem within isn't asking you if you paid the water bill or if you took out the trash. They just always adore you. So it puts your pleasure at a top priority, and it doesn't invite you to grow and relationships invite you to grow. So I think for me, that's one of the biggest reasons to be mindful of masturbation is, is it cause, is it causing me to go inward only? Is it causing me to go to fantasy land? Is it causing me to go to porn? Is it causing me to isolate 
from real life relationships? Is it, is it taking away the desire and risk for me to put myself out romantically because I'm already scratching my itch at home? So then I go and hang out with my friends since I'm already meeting that desire. I don't necessarily want to put myself out there and risk rejection because that's going to be awkward and hurtful. So I'm just going to take care of my own sexual needs at home and then have all my platonic friendships that are meeting just enough of the need that I don't need, that I don't need to look for that need in, in a romantic partner. So I think it's a nuanced conversation and to just label all masturbation, all sin, all the time, to me feels more like a reflection of the person who's teaching it. I think typically a person who's teaching that and who has historically been teaching that message in the church has been male pastors. And I'm wondering if there's porn addiction there or if there's some sort of addiction. And if I think if there is a porn addiction, perhaps masturbation wouldn't be a win for you. Maybe that's not setting you up for success. But I I also want to hear from other people who have, I've, I've never watched porn. I'm not addicted to porn. And I think it's 100% possible to stay connected to my body and invite Jesus into that experience, invite God into that experience and not lust, not go into fantasy land and experience pleasure. I think that's possible. I've experienced it. And I know hundreds and hundreds of women that I've done R&D with and interviews that also have experienced that. So to me, it's a nuanced and layered conversation that, again, we need to normalize. It's the number one question I get from women all over the world. It's Masturbation is the thing that no one wants to talk about out loud, but everyone is dying to talk about. <laughs> it's because everyone is doing it behind the scenes, whether they mm-hmm. admit to it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's yeah. yeah. And and how Absolutely. can we possibly have a conversation about uh, what's healthy and what's not healthy unless we first acknowledge the fact that this thing exists? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, I know we're running uh, long on time here, uh, and I, I so much appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I, I do want to mention real quick, though, because you do mention this in the book, and I'm a huge advocate for mental health, and, and therapy is good. Therapy is good. Um, if you grew up in a situation where you are still experiencing some sort of shame or, um, even trauma as a result of the way that, you know, you were taught, uh, about sexuality, um, man, therapy is such a a big thing. Uh, talk to somebody, uh, that, that can be the beginning of, of, of really, you know, helping to correct course, correct. I think, and, um, and bring on a healthier view. Absolutely. 100%. I think you will never regret one penny that you invest into your wholeness. And I think we, we have every opportunity to grow and heal from the traumas of our past until our last breath. So I, I'm, I just signed up for another therapy session today. I am here for it. Therapy sessions, 12 step programs, emotional intelligence trainings, all of it. Let's, let's be committed to, to growth for sure. I love that. Be the best versions of ourselves. I, I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Before I let you go, uh, where can people go to stay up on top of what you're up to and where can people go out and find the book? Yeah. So you can go to sexlessinthecitybook.com to learn about my book, to buy it. You can also go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all that fun stuff. And my website and Instagram is The Refined Woman. And my weekly podcast is called The Refined Collective. 
Nice. Well, we will include links to all that in the show notes. So if you forget, if you forget what uh, what Kat just said, don't worry. It's all in the show notes. Uh, go check it out. Go grab the book. It's fantastic and a, and a really uh, really good read. So um, thank you again so much for spending some time and coming on the show tonight. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so grateful.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.